someone asked me a few minutes ago when we were going to get to meet uh, Pastor David Ward, and I said, well, he has been here, but I began to think that perhaps he hasn't been in the first service. He's always in the second service. This first hour, he's involved in some of the small churches getting to know people, but he will be tonight leading our prayer time at 6 o'clock, and so if you've not had a chance to meet our newest pastor, I encourage you to come tonight at 6 in room 1 and pray with us, and he will be the one who will be leading and orchestrating our prayer time together. I invite you now to open your Bible with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. God longs to bless us. God yearns to do us good. Do you believe that? God is not sparing. He is not stingy. God is full of grace and generous. There's absolutely nothing that can keep God from doing what is good for you. God has already purposed that everything, everything in your life will work out in the end for good. He has promised that what he has begun in you, that good thing he has begun in you, he will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. God has willed your good. A Swedish hymn <clears throat> captures this truth. I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of the author of these words, <clears throat> lest it be shown that I'm not Swedish. Unfortunately, this hymn is not in the hymnal we currently use. But listen to how this man of God captures how God has willed your good in Jesus Christ. Oh, let your soul now be filled with gladness. Your heart redeemed, rejoice indeed. Oh, may the thought banish all your sadness that in his blood you have been freed. That God's unfailing love is yours that you, the only Son, were given, that by his death he has opened heaven, that you are ransomed as you are. If you seem empty of any feeling, rejoice, you are his ransomed bride. If those you cherish seem not to love you, and dark assails from every side, still yours the promise, come what may, in loss and triumph, in laughter, crying, in wants and riches, in living, dying, that you are purchased as you are. It is a good, every good transcending, that Christ has died for you and me. It is a gladness that has no ending, therein God's wondrous love to see. Praise to you, O spotless Lamb, who through the desert my soul are leading to that fair city of joy exceeding for which you bought me as I am. God has willed your good. He is determined to bless you. However, this does not mean that God 
can bless us with all that he would like, even when we fail to obey or believe him. God is determined that everything is going to come out for good, but in the process, your obedience and mine, or our disobedience for that matter, determines the nature and the measure of what we experience from God. God desires to bless us, and never more so than when we recognize that we have gone astray and we repent of our backsliding and we seek him anew. God is quick to forgive and then to renew us to our fellowship and our walk with him. This truth is illustrated in the text that we're looking at today. We're devoting our last message in Jeremiah chapter 32 to this theme, that God is mighty in restoration. You see, Israel had sinned against God. The people had backslidden. God makes this clear in his response to Jeremiah. In verse 30, for example, he says, Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. And he goes on to express in words that are strong and yet words that are filled with pity regarding Israel's disobedience. Israel had sinned. But one day, God says in this text, Israel will turn away from its sin and to him again. And when Israel does that, he will do them good. He will give them the blessings that he yearns even now to give them. Our text today begins in verse 36 of Jeremiah 32. Follow along with me in your copy of the Bible as I read. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. What city is that? Jerusalem, exactly. He says, Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. And fields shall be bought in this land of which you say, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. 
Men shall buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And in these words, God answers the implied question in verse 25. When Jeremiah says, Lord, you have ordered me to purchase this land, and it's worthless. And the implied question is, what's up? Why should I do this? And now God gives him the answer. And in doing so, God shows himself to be a God who is mighty in restoration. He is eager to bring good things into the lives of those who fear him. That is, those who respect him and live under his lordship. In his faithfulness, God will discipline us when we are disobedient, as he did Israel. But his discipline will be followed by blessing. When God disciplines us, he never forsakes us. He is committed to our good. He is faithful to his word. There are three truths about restoration that I see in our text today. The first one is this, that restoration is presaged in the purchase of the land. The command to purchase this land that God gave to Jeremiah made absolutely no sense. And in fact, it was the occasion for this prayer that we have spent all summer studying. God told Jeremiah to buy the land, that is, to redeem the land that his nephew offered to him. And Jeremiah could not understand why. And so he got on his knees before the Lord. He called in, he obeyed what God told him to do in buying the land. And... He called in witnesses to the transaction so that everyone in public would know that he had done this, and yet Jeremiah didn't understand. But what he is learning now is that what he did in purchasing the land was like a living parable. It was a display of God's faithfulness and, and God's intention to keep his promises to Israel. That which was indeed worthless and was Jeremiah bought, would one day be valuable again. And that land would be restored to the right family in Israel, the one to whom it belonged. And others would buy land, and deeds would be signed and sealed, and transactions would take place again in this land, this land, that was now worthless because of Nebuchadnezzar's armies besieging it. You see, in this transaction, in this purchase of the land, there is a presage of God's restorative intent. 
God is causing Jeremiah to do this to picture in public that this land was going to be restored to them. The second truth about restoration I see is that restoration is promised in the prophecies of the prophet. <clears throat> it is presaged in the purchase of the land, but it is promised outright in the statements that Jeremiah makes. Now the book of Jeremiah, as I explained at the beginning of the summer, is not laid out chronologically. It is more arranged thematically than chronologically. And in chapters 30 through 33, you have the major statements that God made to Jeremiah and through him to the nation regarding restoration. They were not all necessarily given at the same time. But these are the prophecies in which God said he would restore the nation. Now we're going to just dip into these chapters. Because I want to show you that the prophecies that Jeremiah gave were promises of God's restoration. But we're actually going to begin in chapter 29 because there is in chapter 29 the record of a letter that Jeremiah had sent about 10 years or so before the time when Jerusalem was besieged and Jeremiah offered the prayer that we've been studying. As you may recall, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Israel or Judah on three different occasions. First in 605 B.C., the second time in 596-97 in that neighborhood. And then the final time when he destroyed the nation in 586 B.C. Now Jeremiah wrote a letter sometime after that middle attack. Exiles had been carried off to Babylon. The nation continued on and it was allowed to exist and have a king, a puppet king. But exiles had been carried into Babylon. And so Jeremiah receives a prophecy from God and he writes them a letter regarding what God had said to him. The letter itself, the text of the letter, begins in verse 4 of chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice God is taking credit for what Nebuchadnezzar did. Because God has raised up Nebuchadnezzar to discipline Israel. And basically what God tells them in the first part of the letter is, learn to live in Babylon. Give your children in marriage there. Pray for the cities where you have been sent in Babylon. Basically he's saying learn to live as normally as you can where I have sent you and be a blessing to those people, those pagan people that you must live among as captives and as slaves. And after saying that, God gives them a promise that someday they and their children will return. In verse 10 he says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years 
have been completed for Babylon. I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You see, these people did not think there was a future. They had no hope. But God is sending them a word of promise. And he says, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I'm going to fulfill my promise. There is a future. I give you a hope. And I am going to fulfill and restore you. Verse 12 says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. Verse 14, I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes. <clears throat> so you see, God is sending this promise to encourage them. The 70 years for Babylon, by the way, may not be the same 70 years that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which were designated for Israel's captivity. The language here seems to suggest not only did God outline 70 years for the captivity of Israel, but God also outlined 70 years for Babylon's existence. And it's interesting, if you mark off the time of Babylon, you come up to at least 66 years from the time that Nebuchadnezzar became powerful and the time that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. So God probably has that 70-year period that he had enumerated for Babylon in mind in what he says in verse 10. And you recall it was then when the Medes and Persians overthrew Babylon that the Jews were allowed to return under Cyrus to Jerusalem and God's very promise here was fulfilled well so much for this letter let's turn on to chapter 30 to one of the statements the, the sermons really of Jeremiah to the nation God is here speaking to Israel and Judah and just to, to taste it a bit look at verse 7 he says alas for that day is great there is none like it. He's talking about the time of awful sorrow for the people. It is a time of Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. Notice, in one of the sermons that Jeremiah gave in which he announced a time of trouble was coming for them, but God says he will be saved. Look at verse 10. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. And so in this text that we're reading, God says there is a time of discipline, a time of trouble that is coming. Alas for that day. It will be a day of great sorrow among my people. But I will save them. 
and I am with them even as I discipline them, and I will restore them, he says. Let's go on to chapter 31, where we have the basis upon which God will restore his people given to us. God's restoration is based upon a new covenant, as he calls it in verse 31. In our text that we read earlier in chapter 32, he calls it the everlasting covenant. This covenant is in contrast to the old covenant of the law, by which Israel had been related to God. That covenant being delivered on Mount Sinai by Moses, It was a covenant that was conditional. If you do this, God says, I will do that. But God is here saying there is a new covenant that he will make. And on the basis of that covenant, he will ultimately restore his people Israel. And it's an unconditional covenant. And by the way, this new covenant that God speaks about here is the new covenant that was sealed in the blood of Jesus at the cross. It is the very same covenant by which you and I have been saved who are a part of the church in this age. It is an unconditional covenant that God will do us good, not based upon our works, but based upon what Jesus did for us at the cross. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. It is that covenant that the Lord has in mind when he says what he says here. Israel had persistently failed. Now, why is that? Because of a heart problem. There wasn't a problem with the law. It was good and holy and righteous. But there was a heart problem with Israel. And so God in this new covenant says that he's going to give them what they need. Notice in verse 33, he says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And so God is saying here he's going to give them a new heart. In the new covenant, he's going to give a new nature. One that is capable of obeying. It goes on to say, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those are covenantal words. Those are words of relationship. And so he says, I'm going to give you a new relationship with me. Up to this point, I've been your God. You've been my people based upon this covenant. But now I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people based upon this covenant. The new covenant. Verse 34, he says, They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so God promises in the new covenant there's going to be a new understanding of God. A more intimate knowledge of God. And then he says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the Lord promises finally in this new covenant that there will be a new cleansing, a new cleansing of sin. 
not just an atonement provided for through the sacrifice of animals, but God is going to do something that will remove the record of sin. And of course we know that that is the work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God goes on to say here that Israel's future is guaranteed by two very visible, material witnesses. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. The first witness that God points to is the immutable order of nature. God says, here is one evidence I'm giving you that Israel will never cease to be and that I will be faithful to this people and will one day restore them. Look at the order of nature. If that changes, then I will forget them. And then notice the next verse, verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The second guarantee is the infinite universe. God says you can't measure it. Well, we're trying, we're doing our best. You can't measure it. <clears throat> God says if it can be measured, and if we can figure out the foundations of the earth, then I will reject Israel for all that they have done. Now indeed, God is saying here that because of these fixed signs, he will restore Israel. And now we've looked at verse 32, this whole, or chapter 32 this whole summer, so now let's go to chapter 33 where we have in this sermon of Jeremiah a reaffirmation of the covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, God said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God in this chapter now is telling the people, that that covenant is still in force. And he says, you may not understand what's happening, but verse, thir verse 3 says, Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know, which you cannot know, which you cannot discover. I will tell you. And then beginning in verse 6, <clears throat> he says what he's going to do. Now these words refer to the immediate future. What is going to happen in a few decades? He says, I will bring you to health and healing. I will reveal an abundance of peace and truth. Verse 7, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel. I will rebuild them. Verse 8, I will cleanse them. I will pardon all their iniquities. And it shall be to me a name of joy. Remember what we said a few weeks ago? 
We talked about the name of God. We said that that represented God's reputation. So God is saying, I'm going to restore Israel, and that is going to be, for me, a reputation of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear of all the good that I do for them. But there seems to be, in verse 10, a switch. And the words that are, are spoken here seem not only to apply in some sense to that immediate future, but to a distant future. For example, in verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth now if you are a student of the Bible you know that this is one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament the branch of David is the Lord Jesus Christ David's greater son And Jeremiah is saying that God is going to raise up this Messiah king who's a branch of David, and thus a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And he's going to exercise justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. This is the name by which she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. In those days, Israel or Jerusalem, rather, was not known for righteousness, but for harlotry, for its unfaithfulness to God. But in this day of restoration, it will have a new reputation. Its name will be Jehovah, Yahweh, Sidkenu, which means Jehovah is our righteousness. Thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, and so on. And so God is here reaffirming the Davidic covenant. But as I said before, we do not see these words fulfilled in the restoration of Israel under Cyrus, or in the decades or centuries that followed. We do not see these words fulfilled in the first coming of the Messiah. These are among those many prophecies of the Old Testament that have a partial fulfillment in that ancient day, but which can only be fulfilled and explained in a yet future fulfillment. And so Jeremiah is talking here about an immediate restoration but also one that will come in the future. We read earlier about Jacob's trouble. The Bible says that there is yet a future trouble for Jacob. And though Israel has been restored as a nation, awful days are ahead for the Jewish people in the tribulation period. A time of great distress when God will discipline his people and as a result of that, as a nation, they will come to faith in the Messiah that they have rejected. And then the branch of David will return from heaven 
with his church, I might insert, his glorified saints, and come to the earth and establish his kingdom and will execute justice and righteousness from Jerusalem over all of the earth. Restoration is promised in the prophecies of this prophet. And you can just sense the delight of God in anticipating that day. God's joy in looking forward into the future when his people will again serve him faithfully and be restored to him on the basis of the new covenant based upon the blood, the shed blood of the Messiah at the cross. In closing, there is a third truth regarding restoration that I see here, and that is that restoration is provided in the profundity of the nature of God. The profundity of the nature of God. Jeremiah knew what God told him to do, but he couldn't understand why he was to purchase this land. And when Jeremiah couldn't understand what he knew he should do, he did what all of us should do when we're in similar circumstances. He went back to what he knew about God. And he prayed. And I'm talking to some here this morning who have great questions in your life. And you say, I don't understand what God is doing. This does not make sense to me. And I want to encourage you that Jeremiah was in that very same spot and he left you an example as to what you must do. You must go back to what you know to be true about God and pray. And this whole summer we have been studying what Jeremiah knew to be true about God. And he recited that to God and left God the question and God has answered. And God will answer you and God will show you when his time comes. All that God does, he does to glorify himself, to make himself known, to give himself a reputation. And God is at work in your life giving himself a reputation of what he's doing in you. And he wants that to be as a reputation of joy and of glory for him, for all who hear about it. Because God is writing a message in your life as he wrote a message in the lives of these ancient people. And his whole purpose is that he might make himself known to you and to others and get a reputation for the great and mighty God that he is in this world. The God who restored Israel and who will again restore Israel is standing by today to restore anyone who turns to him. It may be I'm talking to someone today who has been, as it were, exiled. You have come under the discipline of God. 
and your way has been difficult. And it's not because God doesn't love you. In fact, it's because God does love you that he allowed you to experience. He sent you into that captivity. God waits. He longs to do you good, and he wants you to turn back to him. God wants to restore you. Even we who are under the new covenant can wander away from God and backslide and be in need of restoration. Well, Jeremiah tells us today that God is mighty in restoration. And he waits on our repentance so that then when we have turned back to him, he may do us good and give all the blessing into our lives that he yearns to put there. I hope that the 70 years is up for somebody today. That you have been in captivity long enough to have learned your lesson. And that now broken and contrite, you will say to God, I'm ready to turn back. I'm coming home to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the last picture we see of him in the New Testament, stands among the lampstands of the churches, among his people, and to most of his own people, in the New Covenant, he says, repent. Repent. Isn't that amazing? Tragic, but truthful. And so he says to you and me, repent and be restored. And let me do for you what I want. And so he waits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that wherever we may be in our spiritual journey today, that you will use this message to effect the kind of response in our lives that you want. And especially do I pray for those who are away from you and who need to come home and who are broken. Oh God, I pray that today that you will put within them that which is needed of your grace to bring them back that you might bless them. Before I go on, I just want to say a word to you with your heads bowed. I am today pleading with you who need to be restored to come back to the Lord. I don't know what issue it may be. I don't know where it started, but you know and God knows. And as we sing a closing hymn in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to take that hard step, but that important step of saying, I'm coming back to the Lord. 
you slip out and come, and I'll pray with all who come after the service. Say, well, I, I don't like to admit this. I don't like to do this in front of people. Listen, you forget that anybody else is here. The most important thing is that God is here, and you're here, and you need to deal with God. Lord, I pray that you will give grace now to do what we need to do to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take your hymnal, please? We're going to turn together to hymn 341, which is a hymn written in our day, but could well have been written and sung by some of those people in ancient Judah. I've wandered far away from God, but now I'm coming home. And as we sing this hymn, on the very first verse, I plead, I urge you to step out and to come. Let's stand together as we sing. <coughs> I've won. 